So is tongues intended for praise to God? I think the gift of tongues is intended for more than praise, but it could have included praise. I think that would definitely be, again, when you look at those verses in 1 Corinthians 14, as well as Acts chapter 2, you'd see that idea there. But tongues are a sign gift, so its purpose is not directly praise, but a sign of God being at work. And, and my point would be that tongue, like praise might have been the content, but the point of the gift wasn't praise. Does that make sense? Number, number two, or point B here, tongues were a person speaking mysteries by the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 2, so that they gave to the church a revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching. That's a quote from 1 Corinthians 14, 6. I think that would indicate it's more than merely uh, reciting a scriptural truth or, or giving God glory for something he has done. It seems to be more of a supernatural kind of prophetic type of ministry. Again, I mean, if you read that, he's speaking of tongues, when he says in 6, a revelation and knowledge, a prophecy, or a teaching. And so I think we ought to see that tongues generally did something like that. It delivered uh, some doctrinal truth that the church needed instruction on, a prophecy, knowledge. And again, think spiritual knowledge, um, or supernatural knowledge, maybe I could say. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, I realize I'm kind of backpedaling a little bit on that question. If you remember, like, he gives these sign gifts, and one of them is knowledge, the supernatural gift of knowledge. He says knowledge is going to cease one of the reasons we know it's not just intellectual knowledge. You get to heaven, you're going to still have knowledge. It's not, that knowledge isn't going to cease, but what will cease? The gift of it. And probably the clearest example I've always thought of is when Peter knows that Ananias and Sapphira have lied to the Holy Spirit. How would he possibly know? Well, there's a supernatural knowledge that's been granted to him. Kind of this um, revelation of God's Spirit to know something he wouldn't have known. If you lose knowledge, if knowledge ceases, when you get to heaven, what exactly are you going to be doing? You don't know anything. You know, there's no, there's no basis for testifying to God's grace in your life. There's no basis for you to exalt the Savior for saving such a sinner as you because you don't remember any sin. You have no knowledge of it. Further, you can't even comprehensively put together sentences because you have no knowledge. I mean, knowledge is not going to cease. That's my point. But this, so we're talking about a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 13. And so when I see knowledge here, I think we should use that same definition. And we're only like eight verses away in the text of Scripture from that use of knowledge. And I think that's what would be going on here. Okay. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Tongues uniquely identified the speaker and his message as agents or, or maybe even the communication itself as from God. Like you have in this, this verse here, and I, I, let's see, he builds himself up. I think that's right around verse um, eight or so, that when he speaks in a way that when there's no interpretation, he's actually only building himself up um, rather than, than praising God or doing something like that. So again, I, I don't think praise is a category we should think of tongues as fulfilling. Not that they couldn't speak praise with tongues. That's not the point. My point is, is that's really not a, a healthy way for us to define tongues as speaking praises to God. Okay. Other question is, tongues were not understood not to men but to God. I, I didn't find much on this. The only place I could actually find any commentator believing this is John MacArthur's study notes. Um, no, no, no commentary, no, no theology kind of defined it the way he does, which leads me to believe that that's probably, like many of us, one of those things that you just, you know how you kind of have personal beliefs and no one agrees with you? In the humility of your soul, you should probably know you're wrong. Right? Like if you alone are singing that note, you're probably just out of tune. So I look at MacArthur's that way. I also just think the context itself, if you look in verse 2, he says they're not speaking to men but to God, and that this is an utterance of the Holy Spirit. Well, that would not indicate they're speaking to foreign gods or false gods, but probably the only person who could comprehend what's happening is God himself. Um, and the point, again, I think is somewhat ironic. The gifts are given for the good of the church. And if the only one who can understand you is God who knows everything, you're actually not accomplishing the purpose for which tongues has been given. But I don't think, I don't think the context would indicate they're speaking of false gods. And finally, Paul does not doubt that these are true spirit-given gifts. He's challenging the application, or at worst, he may be concerned that there is a fraud. And rather than stifle the genuine gift, he prescribes an organized service that would curtail any possible fraud. Does that make sense? So I think Paul's presuming that they're genuinely speaking in tongues. Whereas when I, when I see like crazy people falling on the floor, just babbling and, and incoherent, I look at that and I think that's not what the New Testament church had. That's not honored in the scripture. 
and that doesn't seem to be producing anything that's godly or biblical. And, and I, I would probably just tell them to stop if I was present, right? Like if I was, had any type of influence. And, and I, don't, I don't see Paul's, that negative tone of Paul here. In fact, he ends like the final verse of the chapter is don't forbid tongues, which indicates to me that at least he's granting them um, credibility. Like they're, they're presumably truly speaking in tongues, not just babbling. But I think his rules would eliminate babble without eliminating genuine tongues. And so I think he's kind of threading the needle between those two concerns. Um, but I think because of that, I don't think we ought to have that thought in verse 2 that, that they're actually just speaking to idols or false gods. In fact, in verse 29, he says, let them weigh what's said. So one of the ways you deal with babble, what's said in babble? Nothing. So when you weigh what's being said, you tell them to stop it. Right, like the spiritual gift of discernment when someone is saying nothing or just saying gobbledygook. Yeah, yeah, it's just like you tell them, hey, keep your nothing to yourself. You know, like that, it's just not helping the church, it's not encouraging the church. And so, uh, in fact, 1 John 4, 1, I remember the first time this verse just like jumped out at me. It was actually in a Greek class during a quiz. I had to translate this. And it's like, test the spirits. It's like, test the spirits. And I had no context. I had no idea what book it was from, where it was from in the whole New Testament. And I'm like, test the spirits. Where in the Bible is that? I got out of class, looked it up to see if I got it right or wrong in the quiz. But it's like, man. So, but that would be the context here. It's like, we need to test the prophetic spirits, which would indicate a couple things are going in the New Testament. There's fraud. Some of it's satanic. Some of it's probably just like, you know, people trying to get credibility and honor when they shouldn't. And, but some of it would be from, from hell itself. And so the church was obligated to be very careful about receiving supernatural revelation to make sure it aligned with the rest of Scripture. Um, and, and again, I think that's part of the point of 1 Corinthians 14. All right, third question. Hopefully I'm answering these uh, well enough for you. Um, how do we know that tongues is similar to prophecy? That was a question I answered a little bit last week, but just to clear it up. Uh, 14.5 says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. The context seems to indicate that if there's an interpretation, there, there's an equal sign between them. If there's no interpretation, prophecy is much superior because it's understood. However, if there's an interpreter, tongues arises to the same level as, as prophecy. There's kind of this equivalency that he seems to be indicating. Again, in verses 29 and 30, there's the, kind of the same rules and they're bunched together in the same context. The treatment of tongues and prophecy in, in verses 21 through 25 seem to declare that they shared mirrored purposes. Tongues is for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers. And, and he seems to be saying, like, these are two ways the prophetic word is going out. For, for unbelief, you have tongues. For believers, you have the gift of prophecy because they don't need that supernatural affirmation. And again, what is tongues? It's what? Okay, so it's the ability to speak in a language without learning or education. So supernatural gift to speak a normal human language. And we'll look at that in just a moment in Acts 2. But yeah, that was right on, Heidi. Uh, the speaker is uttering a revelation, a prophecy, a teaching, or knowledge. That's, again, a quote from verse 6. In a language that is not intelligible, verse 9, these communications are similar, similar to the list that is more focused on prophecy in verse 26. In verse 26, it has almost that same list given, and it's talking about prophecy. That is, you have a word, an utterance, a, a, I think it says a poem, or a hymn. Um, so, so again, I, I, think, I think we should see tongues and prophecy as essentially identical outside of the linguistic elements in tongues and the natural language of prophecy, and natural language being the language of the speaker. All right. So those are, that was me kind of cleaning up some of the debris from last week's when we were ending with those questions. I wanted to make sure that we cleared that up for you, gave thoughtful answers with some scripture texts behind them. I don't always have those in my memory and have the ability to just answer. Um, so perhaps like the Old Testament prophets, the speaker could be giving authoritative preaching. My only point here is that with tongues and prophecy, I don't think you always have to have some foretelling. I think, you, uh, again, Malachi is one of my favorite Old Testament books, but he's really clearly preaching Deuteronomy. But he's adding to Deuteronomy some prophetic, like, you better obey or God's going to bring down the hammer. You know, so there's, there's some elements of foretelling, but a lot of what he's doing is just like, this is what Moses said, do it. 
which sounds a lot like modern-day preaching. This is what John said, believe it. And, and in that sense, but I think whenever someone's sp- uh, speaking with their gift or from their office as prophet, they're speaking by the Spirit. I think that's one of Paul's concerns in the church, that these people are jumping into their, they're kind of putting on their official robes for their own personal pride and making a little bit of, of selfish display in the church rather than really serving the common good. All right, now we're on to this week's. Okay, so Spirit Baptism, you guys all with me in 1 Corinthians 12? We're going to reestablish what we did last week, but some of you weren't here. You guys thought I was going to forget, didn't you? You're still there, 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, he's talking about um, gifts in, in the initial verses where he's saying that through the Holy Spirit we have um, a manifold number of gifts in the church. And then he's trying to put us all in the same um, plane in verse 12. For just as the body is... You guys need to get your Bibles. One, just as the body is one and has many members, he's talking about the human body, just as the human body is a singular unit and has many body parts, all the members of the body, though many, are still one body, so it is with Christ. Now, when he says so it is with Christ, is he talking about the person of Christ or is he talking about the spiritual body we call the church? Right, so you say, I mean, we could read it that way, just kind of putting maybe in parentheses or brackets in our minds that we know it's not actually the text. He's saying, so it is with the body of Christ, or the church of Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. That being what, again? The church. Okay, so the spirit baptized us into what? The church, the body of Christ. And I don't know, I mean, I don't want to picture a horrible thing, but... It, it's almost like Frankenstein, you know, Dr. Frankenstein stitches together these body parts to make a body. Just imagine that the Holy Spirit does a whole lot better than Dr. Frankenstein. You know, that we are diverse, ragtag sinners. And the grace of the Holy Spirit brings, apart, brings all of these divergent um, sinners, redeems us, sanctifies, saves us, and unites us and makes the body of Christ the bride of Christ. I mean, so it's a glorious body when Christ is done with it. Uh, that there's such goodness and grace flowing from our God to us through the ministry of the Spirit, through the ministry of Jesus Christ himself to his bride. And so we look at this. Spirit bapti- baptism is the work of the Spirit to do what to you? To unite you to the body. To bring you to the body. And, and join you as a body part. You might be the finger. You might, you might be the ear. We don't know what you are intuitively, but that's, it's done by the prerogative of the Spirit according to his wisdom and according to what he thinks would best serve his body, the body of Christ. Okay, that's helpful to understand. Is that That's the best theological dictionary, dictionary term ever in the New Testament for the Spirit baptism or the ministry of Spirit baptism. Does anyone have, just ballpark guess, how many times Spirit baptism is mentioned? What? In the New Testament. <laughs> okay, so it's more than three, it's less than 34, probably about five, give or take two. That's it. This is the entire, well, you, you know, it couldn't be, I mean, say five, give or take two. I would say probably seven, give or take two, because you have, you have Acts 2, you have 1 Corinthians right here, chapter 12. You have um, Acts 10, Acts, uh, I'm missing one, Acts 19, so that's four. Maybe Acts 8, it doesn't talk about baptism per se. And then you have to debate Romans 6 and uh, Colossians, uh, Colossians 2. That's it. Colossians 2 and Romans 6, I take as water baptism because it never mentions the Spirit doing the baptism, and I think the analogy of water baptism and the theology of Spirit baptism actually make more sense for it to be water, which means, like, Mark's theology have, like, four or five in the whole New Testament. So I, I think that's helpful for you all to understand that this is not some, like, massive, big thing in the New Testament church, or it was so well understood, which I don't think is the case, that, that there is... Um, no need to talk about it any more than, than we need to, to discuss simple things that everyone already knows. 
I don't think that's the case. I think the, the reality is it just was not a major anthem of the church. It was part of God's work. It was a very particular, narrow part of God's work, and it wasn't a significant theology of the New Testament church. Now we wrestle through it in our age because I think people take in it and run and made something big of it. And so now we have to unpack what that big kind of monster in our current culture is of the outpouring of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, being killed or slain in the Spirit. I mean, all this stuff. We've got, I mean, has anyone ever experienced a slaying in the Spirit? Like, I've never been, been there, but I mean, it would be interesting to see or be part of a church service where that was going on. If we have a little bit of extra time tonight, um, we'll just look really quickly at Ephesians, uh, but I don't know if we'll have time, uh, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, Spirit Baptism, Acts 1-8 now. Um, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Okay, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit um, coming on them. When does this happen? Pentecost. And from there, they're going to be witnesses. Should you, uh, in, you can't, can you guys see that up there? Is that, oh, you guys have much better projector than I have. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, I can't see hardly anything on that thing. Okay, so we, we come to Acts, and, and we look at Acts 2. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ahead of myself on my maps here. So this is Judea. Can you guys see it go red? Or actually, Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Red dot. This is Judea, roughly. This is Samaria. That seems to be the world in which Paul's missionary journeys in the New Testament church generally reached. There is a kind of church history idea that Philip made it to India, and Paul's goal was to get to Spain. So this circle needs to be broadened if we include those two ministries within it. And those would have happened that first generation, which is pretty significant in terms of you're traveling by foot. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of ministry. But as, as, as God outlines the advance of the gospel, I think what you should be considering is not geography as much as people groups. You know, so we have Jerusalem, kind of that, that city center where the temple was, where Israel's uh, religious foci was with everyone coming and gathering for these uh, spiritual events, uh, whether it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, or Passover. So what does spirit baptism do? Well, first, you see spirit baptism um, ministering to the scattered Jews in Acts 2. And if I were to say Jerusalem is Acts 2. Going back to that map. Okay, so are you guys with me in Acts 2? I guess you're all, you're all probably cheating on the screen, aren't you? You guys need to be people of the book. Get your Bibles. I put it up there partly so I can just point out things to you. Um, okay, so, so we come to Acts. The day of Pentecost arrived. Does anyone know Pentecost? Penta? 50? So this happened 50 days after the Passover. So we're only seven weeks after Jesus died. This is very, very recent. Okay, so Jesus is, is only two months from his death. He was about 40 days with his disciples and apostles now after his death, right? So how long has Jesus been off the scene completely? Yeah, so we're looking at a week and a half that Jesus has been gone. When I start putting it, like, it's, it's amazing to me how condensed that timeline is. It seems like it should be. <laughs> and I mean, think about this. Seven weeks before, Peter's like, I don't know him. Like, he denies Jesus seven weeks before. He stands up in front of a crowd of thousands of people and proclaims the mighty works of God. Okay, so we're going to keep reading here. They all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. <coughs> and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. So who is getting the ministry of Pentecost? <coughs> right, he's introducing the Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them. That's the apostles and probably the rest of the disciples there as well speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, 
Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews, and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So, um, when you look at, <coughs> here's a representation of all the places they're from, just so, I mean, some of you are like, where's Libya, where's, where's Elam, where's Parth? <coughs> I don't know that they <coughs> all necessarily would have. Again, we're, we're, I think we're generally speaking of um, Jewish people regathering for these festivals who live in these places. So if you remember during the captivities with Babylon and Assyria, Israel scatters. Like, they run to Alexandria to escape some of the occupational stuff with Babylon. They get deported by these countries. And so kind of in those recovery years, especially <clears throat> in the years like of Alexander the, Alexander the Great and, and the rise of the, the Greek Empire and stuff like that, um, the Jewish people had moved. That's where the synagogues really get their strength, is, is a scattered group of people trying to retain their cultural and spiritual um, connection and faithfulness. And so the synagogues were training centers so that people didn't lose their, their Jewish orthodoxy. Um, so I think some of the regathering that you see in these, these um, like Passover, I mean, the estimates range like from 2 million, where the city I think was normally um, a couple hundred thousand if. You know, so you're looking at a huge surge of people entering for the Passover from all of these places. So that's where when Paul goes and teaches in the synagogues, these are these are, um, I mean, we'd almost think of them like churches, kind of how we think of stuff, but think of them as training centers to um, teach doctrine and theology to your children and culture, Jewish culture to your children so that they worship Yahweh. That's what's going on in these synagogues. Did, did you have? <clears throat> yeah, my, my point was that they're probably all Jewish in culture, but they probably, if they've been in those locations for any time, are at least bilingual. Maybe trilingual. I think trilingual would have been very, very common in that, in that age where you would probably have, especially for your Jewish people, they, they would speak um, Aramaic, they would speak Hebrew, and they would speak Greek. And Latin was also very common you know, for, for the age. So, um, all right. So, so, so these people all hear what? So the Spirit comes, the Spirit baptizes. These speakers, what do they do? They speak in tongues. So a tongue is, is the word you would use for your tongue, and, and it's euphemism for language, so they speak in languages. Um, and here are some of the languages represented people from these locations that would have spoken different languages, probably as kind of the local, even though they all have the trade language of Greek and sometimes um, Latin. Um, they all speak that way. Okay, why is God doing this? <coughs> it's a sign. So... If you guys have your Bibles, I think it's uh, chapter 14, verse, is it 20? I always get this wrong. 1 Corinthians 14, and he's referring to Isaiah 28, 11. So if you want to jump over there in your Bibles, I don't have these on the slides. Um, so I'm not going to make you look up in your Bible something that's going to be on the screen in a second. Uh, so he says... In verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 14, In the law is written by people of a strange tongue, and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are signed not for believers, but for unbelievers. So when you come to Isaiah 28, verse 11, the text says, and it's a, it's a prophecy about Assyria coming in, he says, for by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose, and yet they would not hear. And the, Lord of the, word, the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And I don't have time to spend many moments there in Isaiah, but it's clearly a prophecy of judgment. Assyria is going to come in, and God is going to use the Assyrian people to be a sign of his judgment. So when you hear the foreign invaders come in, and you hear foreign languages because there's foreign invaders in your cities, 
this is actually God speaking to you. Judgment has come. And even in that moment of judgment, when these foreign invaders are walking their streets and taking captive their children, you're still not going to hear me. It's a, it's a sad prophecy. Now, Paul is suggesting that the New Testament gift of tongues is connected to that prophetic concern that foreign languages among the city streets of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem and the Jews in Jerusalem who are attempting to worship Yahweh is a sign to them that God is doing something. God is speaking. And generally, what did the Jewish people do to the church? We don't have to go very far into Acts, and we have the leaders of the temple pulling in Peter and persecuting him, beating him, and he counts, counts it a, a glory. He's thanking God, praising God that he was counted worthy to suffer. We, we go move a little further, and we have Stephen. What happens to Stephen? He's stoned, and the church in Jerusalem is under great persecution, and they scatter. Okay, so we come to Acts chapter um, 8. And that is, I was going to say, there's, there's more scripture in that slide than was showing up at first. Okay, Acts chapter 8. We'll start in verse 4. Now, there, now those who are scattered, why were they scattered? Yeah, just go back. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those were scattered, went about preaching the word. Boy, I really hope the Lord does not have to do this to us to get us to go share the gospel. Right, like, if we become so committed to our own comfort that God sends persecution to get us out of our comfort to share the gospel with people across the street and across the world, um, boy, that would that'd be something I would not ask for, but I'd rather the gospel go than be comfortable, wouldn't you? So they are scattered. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So clearly the Spirit of God is doing something, right? Like, like Satan and darkness is being defeated in these moments as the gospel is advancing into Samaria. There was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. <clears throat> but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon, this magic trickster, apparently gets saved. I don't think he does. And he is amazed by the cool stuff Philip does. I mean, he's a better magician. That's clearly what, what uh, he, uh, he is thinking. So when the apostles at Jerusalem heard uh, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. These are apostle representatives. Hey, is this thing true? Have the Gentiles, or the Samaritans, excuse me, really believed? How, how are we to know? So they came down, verse 15, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any, any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven to you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that someone who's in the bond of iniquity is actually a genuine convert, but perhaps. And this is about all we have of Simon the magician. Okay, so what, what happens here in Samaria? Apparently they're getting converted. The church gets together and it's like, hey, um, so there's this story coming out of Samaria. Philip's there. We trust Philip, but we got to validate this thing. 
So they send out the apostles from Jerusalem, Peter and John. Peter and John, these kind of pillars of the church, you could say the foundation, Ephesians 2, they go, and what's their question? Is this stuff true? Now, they've been baptized with the baptism of Jesus, but not what? Okay, so it doesn't say spirit baptism, but I think that's the inference, right? That they've received baptism by water, but they haven't actually received the Holy Spirit. Now, my, my theological grid would tell me they are not yet part of the church. Agents of the church, the apostles, are coming to validate whether or not they're actually true believers in Christ and a legitimate part of the church. They come, lay hands on them, and I think that's when spirit baptism happens, and spirit baptism does what? Brings them into the church. I think like, that's where the apostles are validating. The message has landed. They've believed. They've received. They're true, they're true converts to Jesus. They've received his baptism in water. Here, the Holy Spirit is laid on them, indicating that now they, too, receive the gift of the Spirit, which then gives us for ministry within the church, joins us to the body of Christ. Yes, Haley. Okay, good question. Do you remember in Acts 1-8, we had these little circles in that little map? What's just happened is we went, we went to a new circle. And so my, my theology and my understanding of Acts is that kind of the opening of that door in this new area, this new people group, required apostolic approval. But once that door has been opened, we don't need to keep opening every door for every uh, Samaritan. Teresa? Basically, she's suggesting like, okay, so do we need to have apostolic hands laid on us nowadays to be part of the church? And my answer was, <clears throat> kind of the, 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 the redemptive historical moment here is that an entirely new people group is being brought into God's saving people or saved people. The redeemed people went from, how'd you get saved in the Old Testament? You kind of had to proselytize into the nation, Right? Like, like when Ruth says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, she didn't just say, your God will be my God. <laughs> Wait, let, let, me, let me go forward because you'll see them get to the U.S. theoretically. <laughs> yes. That would be my understanding. No, I wouldn't say that. I think Old Testament believers were indwelt. No. Okay. <laughs> yes. I would say something snarky, but um, I get myself in trouble. They're very good questions. Please, I was, I was going to say something snarky. I enjoy, I enjoy thinking through these things with you all. Okay, so, um, spirit baptism. I think, analogously, we can see in the Old Testament, spirit gifting too. Does the Holy Spirit do ministry in the Old Testament that we see explicitly identified in the Old Testament? Do you guys remember when Saul was king, and the Spirit comes on him, and he, and he does good kingly work, but then when he rebels against God, the Spirit leaves him? Okay. That's a theocratic anointing. You all see that with Moses. Moses is doing the ministry under the power of God's Spirit, and his, his father-in-law, is it Jethro, comes to him and is like, you're dumb. You have like two million people. You need some help, man. You cannot do it all on yourself. You need to appoint elders. And, and Moses anoints 70 elders, and he gives them part of the Spirit, or a portion of the Spirit, I think the Scriptures say. And they all then minister as, as kind of his deputies leading Israel. And so in the Old Testament, you have this kind of anointing power that God gives for people who work in the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And I'd use king loosely because I don't think Moses was technically a king, but I think his, his general office was kind of king work that he did. All right, so then you come to David. Like, for instance, David's sin, Psalm 51. Don't take your spirit from me. I don't think he's worried about being unsaved or, or losing his salvation. I think he saw King Saul go crazy losing the grace of the Spirit's gifting for king work. 
And he's like, please don't treat me like Saul. Don't abandon me as king. Stay with me and be gracious to me and forgive me. And help me to remain a sweet shepherd for Israel. And, and don't, because I mean, how badly was Israel hurt with King Saul? I mean, they suffered a miserable defeat at the end of Saul's life when Saul and Jonathan die at the hands of the Philistines. And I think, I think David's concerned about that. So we see this work to do ministry among God's people in the Old Testament. Who received that work? <clears throat> yeah, and only, only a few. Right, like Moses and 70. So out of 2 million, 71. Maybe you'd add um, Aaron and some of the priests there. So maybe we can amplify that out to maybe a couple thousand out of millions. You come to the New Testament, how many people are spirit gifted? All of them. I think this is part of why, why in Acts 2, when you have the, the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, um, and now it, like, he gives that prophecy from Joel 2, where he says, this is what Joel spoke of when he said, your daughters will dream dreams and have visions. I think his point isn't that now we're going to be in like the end days that way, as much as in this is consistent with the outpouring of the Spirit where all people get it. In analogies, yes. I think, I think it helps us see that God was supernaturally enabling people to do work for his people in the Old Testament. Now he's supernaturally enabling his people to do work. And it's all of us who get the supernatural enabling. Not just a King David type of guy. Not just a Moses type of guy. Not just a prophet like Elijah or Elisha. Not just the priests like Aaron and, and, and the few appointed there to work in the temple. Everyone who is a believer is, is granted the grace of a gift. And it should be considered a grace gift. It's not a personality thing. It, it's not something you have before you're saved, per se. I do think sometimes there are spirit-energized abilities that maybe are consistent with something you had prior to salvation, but if we don't identify it as some supernatural enabling, I think we do a disservice to the New Testament's record of it. Okay, uh, one or two more questions, then I want to get through this. I think, I think that's a much better answer than indwelling. I think indwelling is, is theologically suspect. <laughs> when you say they, who's they? Sumerians? The Sumerians before the apostles laid hands on them did not have spiritual gifts. Right. Yes. Let me ask you, was King David indwelt before he was anointed as king? Or do you think when he's on the hillside, composing songs, worshiping the Lord and faithful to him, that he was doing that without the aid of the Holy Spirit? Right, so we have people throughout all of human history who have been, let's say, graced by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and sanctified by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whether we call it indwelling or not, it's not my point. And they're not gifted with spiritual gifts for the church. That requires us to be in the church age. And I really think maybe that would be a helpful way for you to see it is, is this is their official God-approved stamp of entry into the church. Where, where almost in some ways you could picture them as Old Testament believers entering into the body of Christ just like the apostles did on Pentecost. Were they saved and was the Spirit active before Pentecost? When did the Holy Spirit descend on them and give them the gift of tongues? At Pentecost. So, so there's a gap there even in those men that helps us have a theological, a theologically valid proof that this is something consistent with God's work. Does that help? Okay, good questions. So thank you for putting me through the ringer. <laughs> okay, so um, this will be significant here. So we come to the Gentiles now. So here's, here's the great U.S. of A. Not necessarily in the Bible particularly, but we're a bunch of Gentiles or the Hebrews who call us goyim, the unclean people. Okay, so Peter, in, in chapter 10 here, he doesn't really want to do this. In fact, it, you know, Peter has this vision. What's in this vision that Peter has, this dream? <coughs> yeah, animals descending. And God says, go eat them. He's like, no, I'm not going to eat pig. It's unclean. Clearly, he's never had bacon. <laughs> right? Like, he did not know what he was missing. And, and he won't do it. God says, don't call 
unclean, what I have called clean. God is not doing that merely for food, but for all of those who are caught up in dietary stuff. Please never call those foods unclean that are unclean in the Old Testament because you're literally disobeying God. What does he call those foods? Clean. And I think those are a type. What's the, what's the, the fulfillment, the anti-type here? It's actually Gentiles. Aren't the Gentile people unclean? Ceremonially untouchables? People who would dirty you, and so you'd have to like ceremonially wash before you enter the temple if you shook hands with a Gentile? Yes. And so God is by analogy or by typology saying, if you can eat pork that's unclean, you can recognize the Old Testament rituals of cleanliness have been set aside. There's a different standard for cleanliness, okay? So we come to chapter 10. He's had, he's had all this interaction. Come down with me to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing and all who were oppressed by the devil. Uh, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, uh, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain some days. So here we see that the gift of the Spirit and speaking in tongues particularly are, are commensurate or, or they happen at the same time as what? Salvation. What people group? We just, we just walked out of the Sumerians, which are kind of like half Jew, half Gentile, to full Gentiles. Okay, so now a new door is open. We've entered a new circle. So we went from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, and now from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the Gentiles. Once that door is opened, we don't need to keep reopening it because this is God's seal of approval that he is now expanding the gospel to the Gentiles. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, so now Gentiles are included in the church. So we have this really kind of out of phase one in in uh, Acts 19. I don't want to ignore it simply because I want to be um, as thorough as we can be so that I give you guys a, a little bit of a theological framework. So I'm just going to read this off the screen for sake of time. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the um, inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And it said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, again, an apostle, a foundational pillar of the church, laying hands on people, the Holy Spirit came on them. Then they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What's interesting is this is some 20 years after Jesus has died, and we have John the Baptist apostle or uh, disciples, and they still have no clue about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. I mean, again, they didn't have Facebook. You know, like, I mean, like, we, we forget how isolated it is not to have um, modern communication and media. You know, so there's this isolated group of 12 men, which probably includes family and people like that as well, and they're faithful to, to repenting of sins and following after the God of the Bible, but they have no clue about the church and the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul meets them and sees in them, I think, genuine saving faith. And I would, I would put them on a parallel with Old Testament believers, even more so than the Sumerians. Because they've been saved, apparently, living faithful to God and believing in God for decades. But they don't have the full revelation. They don't have the New Testament. So what do you do with someone who believes in the God of the Bible, believes everything they know about the God of the Bible, but doesn't have the whole Bible? <laughs> Paul's like, so have you heard about the Holy Spirit? No. Holy what? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus? No. Okay, so John talked about the guy that was going to come. He's Jesus. <sighs> but, but here, I mean, the big picture of this. They're believers who are indwelt. They have the grace of the Holy Spirit as soon as they hear the truth. Who's witnessing and confirming and convincing this is true? So what do these men immediately do? Well, yeah, we need to do this thing. We believe. Okay, well, I'm going to baptize you. Lay hands on them. They're in the church. And they move basically from, let's call it Old Testament sainthood to New Testament church member. Right? So they go from saved to saved, but they go from external to the church to in the church in these moments as the Apostle Paul is a, mem- as a minister of the church. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> sorry, I went backwards on my slides. So when we look at Acts 11, verse 1, the apostles and the brothers went throughout Judea, uh, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. This is no surprise to anyone. Whenever God is moving and working, there's going to be someone on the sidelines going, did you do it right? I don't know if God's really in that because that's not the way we did it last year. And I think it's consistent and some of it's, some of it's good criticism. They were to test the spirit. Some of it's like, is that really what God is doing? Okay, so they asked the question. We'll assume it's from good motives, but I think the circumcision party indicates probably not great motives. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain it to them in in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened to me three times. Peter is stubborn. <laughs> right, three times. He denied Christ three times. He was asked, do you love me three times? Peter needs re- repetition. He was drawn up into heaven again, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived from a house which we were sent, the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them and make no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, this is chapter 10. We read about Cornelius, right? And the Gentiles. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered that the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How do you know God is at work? How do they prove this is a God thing? It's not just Peter trying to grow his numbers. It's not Peter trying to build the first megachurch. How do you know God's at work? God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed. Now, he's talking about Pentecost, which is, for me, I'm like, hmm. So Peter's identifying, he's kind of, to me, being a little bit loose with when we believe, but I think he's moving to Pentecost there, right, in his mind. Okay, even the the Jerusalem council, come to Acts 15. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You, You guys remember the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? where they're trying to decide how Gentiles need to be brought into the church, how much they have to do. And they have a really simple list of rules. What do they have to not participate in? Does anyone remember? Okay, strangle things, th- sacrifice to idols, and I think adultery or fornication, someone mentioned too. Like, that's it. It's like a really narrow little list of like, okay, 
don't eat things with blood still in them, worship idols, or be immoral. Like, this is not a list from the Old Testament law code, in, at least in any type of fullness. It's a very narrow, be godly, don't be worldly type of list. How do we know God approves? Look at, look at the words there that are in orange. God, who knows the heart, testified. He bore witness. I think that's how we are to see the gift of tongues. How do you know the Holy Spirit has descended and brought someone into the church? How do you know that God has brought salvation to the Samarians? Remember Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, the, Samari- the Samaritan? Samarian? Can I say both? I did both the correct ethnic word. And, and like she's, she's like amazed he's interacting with her because he's a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan woman. Right? Like, like they, they do not socialize. They do not integrate. They, I mean, we would we kind of cringe at the, the ethnic word, but I think, like, go back to, to days in which racism was common and accepted and think of words like half-breed. I think that would be, like, the social acceptable idea that you would use for the Samaritan people. And God brings the gospel to them and to the, the Gentiles, the pagans, the, the spiritually dirty people. God redeems them too. How do we know that this is so? Spirit baptism and the the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so God used the gift of tongues to reveal that it was his work to send the good news of Jesus' salvation to the Gentiles. Having established that this work of grace was his work, the need for the purpose of tongues is completed. If any further work was needed, it undoubtedly would be through prophecy. Like, like, Like at that point, where the gospel like crosses those barriers. I think by the time you get to Acts 19 with the apostles of John, there's, there's no other possible people group because he's just dealing with big swaths. It's Samaria's people and then the Gentilic people, and we're done. Like There's Jews, half-Jews, and non-Jews. They're all part of the church. And then you come to something like Ephesians 2. This is part of God's profound mystery, right? That he's bringing people, regardless of ethnicity, slaves and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, and he's uniting them into this one incredible body called the church. He says, like, even the powers of heaven look on and are amazed. That's, that's part of what God is doing. All right, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause on this one. I was going to just spend a little bit of time and suggest to you that Jesus and the apostles have a special place in kind of the redemptive history. And so we need to be careful that what we don't, are, what we don't do theologically is normalize a very unique moment in history and say that that's what should be going on today. Because I think that's, again, I, I kind of made the point softly about two weeks ago, that when we read our Bible, if you were to take out these kind of miraculous epics Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, most of the miracles in the Bible disappear. Not all of them. There's, there's miracles that happen outside of those few, those few generations. But generally speaking, what God is doing is something like a surprise turn for the people that are around. So you think with Moses, Moses basically is the, is the one who, who founds the nation of Israel, writes its constitution, and pulls it from a place of scattered tribes under occupation in Egypt, and he formulates a nation and builds their, their society and religious expression through the Pentateuch. You can't do that to that fractious group of fighters without the grace of the Holy Spirit. There is no way to call them to listen to you. And even with God's miraculous work, they still didn't like him. I mean, half the time Moses is afraid he's going to get killed or they're just going to leave him, right? Like, like Moses has some serious struggles with Israel and he calls him like stiff-necked. Can you imagine without the miraculous grace of God giving manna, feeding them in the wilderness, giving victory after victory to his people, what Israel would have done to Moses? <laughs> would they have listened to him? Would they have, would they have if they didn't stand at the base of Mount Sinai and see God speaking through the thunder and the lightning and the, and the earthquakes, would they have known that it was God? Would they have trusted Moses without the miracles, without the supernatural? 
And then you see with Elijah and Elisha, I think the, the nations are kind of, you know, it's like when your plane is flying along at cruising speed and all of a sudden you feel it start to slow down and dive. It's like the nation's doing that spiritually and politically. And God is using Elijah and Elisha to call them to stay faithful to God, and they don't listen. And I think the miracles are challenging the spiritual decay and calling people back to the Lord. And then with the apostles and Jesus Christ himself, the church was never even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's why he calls it a mystery. And so all of a sudden, God has answered to the prophetic typology of the Old Testament with the sacrificial lamb and things like that. And for him to say, this lamb, this person named Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, but you know is a Nazarene, this is the man, look to him. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Look to him. And, and there's going to be a new body of people, not Jewish people, not not united ethnically, but united through the Holy Spirit, through spirit baptism. Well, why would you ever believe that such crazy talk? Like, why would you abandon worship in the temple to worship with a bunch of Gentiles or, or Samaritans? Well, because clearly God is doing something. Well, how do you know God is doing this? The miracles prove they're God bearing witness that this is his work, this is his grace. So then we, we, we contend to look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures and think, man, there's miracles everywhere. Where's the power of God today? Like, I want, I want God to, like, come down like he did at Pentecost. Do you think God's people in the whole Old Testament felt that way about the days of Moses? Like, I want to see God feed us with manna from heaven. I'm sure. I think you probably had some doubters saying, well, I would believe God if he could do stuff like he did during Moses' day. I want to see him turn the Jordan River into blood. Of course. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we see people who are eager to move faith to experience, which is not biblical faith, and they want to feel and sense and see and and, and, and have proof that undergirds and strengthens and, I would say, displaces biblical faith. Because biblical faith is believing what you don't see. Isn't that what Hebrews says? It's the evidence of things unseen. And so I, I think there's this longing. Um, there, there's a couple books on postmodernism that I read um, in the 90s. That, that it was, one of them is fascinating. I think it's a, the guy's name is Ed Veith, or Veith. And he predicted that there, was a, there would be a passion for real because everything is so fake. And he said, you're going to see in entertainment particularly just a, a fascination with what is real. Since then, we've had shows like Survivor, The Bachelor, and reality everywhere. We don't like real actors who act. We want real people who are real. It's still fake. But if we get ourselves, it's real. The church, the church has got, and we have got this cancer killing our faith that if we don't experience it, it's not real. Listen, biblical faith is reading the pages of Scripture, letting the Holy Spirit testify within your spirit that this is true. That's biblical conviction. Conviction is not always like you have sin, therefore you're guilty. Biblical conviction is being convinced. And by faith, we hold that these words are true. I think the fascination with signs and miracles and wonders, particularly the, the desire for it to be a, a huge thing moving the whole church, is actually just a huge expression of dissatisfaction with the delivered word of God. So, Seek a sign? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Like, we, we, we really, I mean, even Jesus' final words is, you know, like, doubting Thomas says, you know, my Lord and my God. And he goes, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And, and we are robbing ourselves of that blessing. At least we are pursuing the, the, the lack of it by trying to experience and make it felt. And, I, I mean, if you want some, like, applicational stuff that as a pastor kind of makes me cringe, 
like the lasers and smoke in the music service, man, you could feel the presence of God because he lives in smoke machines. Like, how horrible is that? Like, it's a manufactured spirituality. That's garbage. You know how you know the Holy Spirit's living in you? The things that owned your soul before, the things you pursued for joy, the battles of sin you're winning, the transformation and sanctification that God works through you as you understand his word and walk with his son, fellowship with him by reading the Bible and praying. Man, that's, look at yourself in the mirror and remember where you'd be without Jesus and tell yourself that there's not a supernatural work happening all the time within the church at Crossway. God is amazing. This morning I, I heard someone share with me how they trusted Christ. And it was just so encouraging to hear God at work in this person's life. Bumped into James Barragon in a random place, and he testified. He's like, hey, can I share with you the gospel? They weren't ready. They didn't want to give up their sin. They went to Laura Glenn. Still don't want to give up their sin. Left Laura Glenn. I think there was another conversation in there that I don't remember in the testimony, and finally they came to Crossway. And they were ready to give up their sin, and they trusted Christ. Like, man, that's a miracle. God's providence. It's like, those conversations were not accidents. Those relationships, those people were not accidents. And finally, God took and said, do you love me more than your sin? And she said, yes, and trusted Christ. God is amazing. We do not need to have a healing service where we take someone and pretend like we've done something in order for the world to think God is real. Okay. A couple, a couple of minutes for prayer requests, then we need to go.